me to um, Psalm 74. Psalm 74. Um, some, some weeks ago, um, I uh, preached on Psalm 73, a favorite uh, psalm of many, uh, and you may recall that it dealt with a personal crisis, a, a personal crisis of greed, uh, when our soul is, is gripped with greed and with envy. Uh, and um, the green monster of envy um, was defeated uh, when the psalmist went into the temple, beheld the presence and the glory of God, and realized what was far superior was God himself rather than anything on this earth that he might wish. So it was a personal crisis that was resolved by going to the temple. We have a very different psalm before us this evening. It is about a national crisis, a national crisis of faith, and the enemies have destroyed the temple. There is no temple to go to. There is no dwelling place of God in which they may see the ongoing presence and favor of God in the land. The whole nation was facing a tragedy of being removed from their homes and heading into exile. And while we here are sheltering in place in our homes, there perhaps is a similar emotional impact in the crisis that we go through. There is confusion even here, as there was in Israel, we'll get to that in a moment, but the confusion here is how could this happen and so powerfully happen, so destructively happen in the West where we have presumably superior uh, methods and means to deal with disease. There's also a problem with fear that we have that they had no doubt in Israel as well and a sense of vulnerability. Last week, you um, probably didn't know anyone who had been infected by the virus. This week, you certainly do. Whether or not you know, you know it so far, you certainly do already. So what we want to look at as we consider this psalm, we want to look really at two questions. What is God saying to us, his church? What is God saying to us? to those who believe and are in that covenant of friendship with God. And then what is, it, what is also God's interest in the world? And what is God calling us to do um, in a relationship to the world? And I want us to consider verse 12, right in the middle of the psalm, as, as, as a, not just a, a center of the psalm uh, in, its, in its location, but also as it, as it really summarizes the theme of the psalm, what the psalmist is getting at. And it, and it is this, uh, Yet God, my King, is from old, of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. God, my King, is from of old, working salvation in the midst of this earth. Now, the first point I want to make is from verses 1 through 11. Allow me to read them now at this time. And we're thinking about this question, that in your crisis, you have confidence in God. In your crisis, take your confidence in God. Psalm 74, verses 1 through 11. O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? 
Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Direct your steps to the perpetual ruins. The enemy has destroyed everything in the sanctuary. Your foes have roared in the midst of your meeting place. They have set up their own signs for signs. They were like those who swing axes in a forest of trees, and all its carved wood they broke down with hatchets and hammers. They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, we will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet. There is none among us who knows how long. How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Why do you hold back your hand, your right hand? Take it from the fold of your garment and destroy them. This passage, this section opens up with the question that really is a fear of of having been rejected by God. Is this forever? There is a confusion as well in this rejection from God. And and really, there, there are a couple of things that make them say, What? You've rejected us? How can that be? And these are the two things we see in the next couple of verses. That we are God's redeemed people. We are His sheep. We are His congregation. And we can make that same observation about ourselves. Those same labels applied to us in the New Testament. Not only are we God's redeemed, but this, as they would view the the destroyed temple, this is where God lives, his holy temple. It is the sacred space that God has used to to meet with his people. And verse 3 goes on and says, almost in a, in a, in a, certainly an anthropomorphic way, but, but the psalmist is saying, God, pick up your feet. Walk this way and look at what is going on here. Check this out. Look at the ruins. Direct your steps to this perpetual ruins. And then the next several verses talk about the utter destruction that has been brought to the temple. And the psalmist says, it's saying it's not just our foes, they're your foes who have roared into the holy place and they have removed our signs. They have removed those things which point to the reality of your covenant relationship with us. And then they've set up their own. Well, what's going on here? When when an attacking army takes a fort, one of the great, you see this, certainly we see it in the movies, don't we? One of the first things they do is they march into the fort and they lower the flag, the banner of the nation that they've conquered and they raise up their own colors to describe the fact or to point out the fact that they, uh, they have now authority in that place. And so in this case, the enemies had removed such signs as Aaron's rod, Aaron's budding rod that pointed to God's covenant faithfulness. And, and then they tore into 
They tore into the temple, desecrated the temple, smashed the wood carvings, and then burned it up. What, what a sense of devastation and hopelessness. And so let's consider for ourselves in our time, what about us? How do we respond to this? Very difficult, obviously a very difficult time because we don't know the ultimate impact of the COVID-19 virus that is ravaging not only our own country and nearby cities, but the world. And it will affect different people in very many different ways. Uh, Some of us will have a financial situation that is significantly changed. We may lose our jobs. We may not be able to report to work for a long time. Others of us will go through painful suffering. Or people we know and love, people who are close to us, will go through that suffering and we will watch, perhaps from a difference. I think there's even an untold uh, toll that will come across or come upon many of us, and that is the emotional stress that will occur when we are isolated, when we are separated from other people except for those in our own family, that will create, for some more than others, a great sense of, of loneliness. What will, how will our own church be affected by being apart from each other for so long? Will we get used to it and prefer it? I doubt it. Some might. It might also increase our love for the body, our love for the sacraments which we're able to have together, united to Christ and united to one another. Uh, Verse 9, however, goes on to speak about even the deepest of all uh, problems is is that that hopelessness. And a a couple of things here are are mentioned in in verses 9 and following. for the first in, in verse in verse nine is that God is silent. There is no prophet who is speaking to God's people at this point. There is no prophet who is go, is telling us how long this is going to go on. There is silence and there is a, 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 an echo into the future of not knowing when this thing is going to end. It was it was no prophetic voice was critical. For God's people, they felt that profoundly. But the second thing, not only was God silent, but God was still. Our right-handed God, if I can put it that way, the scripture speaks, when it speaks of God's power and is lifting up his arm or his hand, it is always the right hand of power. And here in this passage, we see that God's right hand is resting on his lap quietly. His powerful right hand is in the fold of his garment. He not only is not saying anything, he's not doing anything. And yet, as as we read this, we can only say that the only surprise that we find here is that they were surprised. They knew their Bibles. They knew Deuteronomy 28. They knew that if you did not obey the Lord, there would be punishment your town, your cities would be vacated, your, your, your capital city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, and God would depart that temple. How do we look at that, again, from our perspective on this side of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, following the exile, the temple was rebuilt, 
and later on Herod would remodel it and make it even more beautiful. In fact, it was a dazzling city. Those who would, who would approach Jerusalem from a distance would see, first thing they would see when they rounded a hill, they would see the city spread below them and, and the temple itself sparkling. It was dazzling. And so when Jesus made this comment to his disciples, when they were admiring the great and the huge stones, Jesus said to them, tear down this one, tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And of course he was talking, John tells us, he was talking about the temple of his body. He would be, he would be uh, crucified and then raised on, on that third day. But here, this is the point I want you to see, God is not silent and God is not still. He is not silent he is not still, but he has come to us, taking on the flesh, our own flesh, becoming one of us in the person of Jesus Christ, who dwelled among us, God himself, in all God's glory, full of grace and truth. Okay, what are we to do with this then? We are to never lose sight of our signs. Never lose sight of our signs. Not talking here about Aaron's rod, but about the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God's love and justice met and where God the Son was suffered and died. The sacraments which we love declare that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That Jesus while not here bodily among us, has graciously given us the Spirit that we may see and know Him and live for His glory. We have the temple. We are that temple indwelt by the Spirit of God. We can't live as Christians, not well, without being a part of that precious temple. And because uh, Jesus is our temple, we do have everything that we need to flourish in this crisis. We have what we need to flourish here. I think of the words of Elizabeth Elliot, who experienced raw suffering in her own life, the, the martyrdom of her husband, among other things. But this is a statement from Elizabeth Elliot. God is God. And if he is God, he is worthy of my worship and service. I will find rest nowhere but in his will. And that will is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. Through our relationship with Jesus, through the blessings of God's Word and Spirit, our souls nourished with the, with, the, the, with the bread from heaven, we are able, by God's grace, to live no matter what our future is and to serve God. There is so much fear in many people today. Fear that if people head back to work too soon, then infections will spike, and they will. And fear that if people stay home, the economy will go farther and farther down. And it will. And so we need to remember that in whatever the circumstance, God calls us and equips us by his grace 
uh, to, to live in a way that glorifies him and honors him. I, I, want, I hope that you are, ident- through this long series of dipping into the Psalms on Sunday evenings, that you are finding Psalms that nourish your heart. And I want to read a little bit out of Psalm 46 just now. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Listen to this. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the earth. You have everything that you need in order to flourish in this crisis. Even though... The psalmist has just said, it seems like God is silent. And God has his right hand sitting on his, in, on his, um, on his lap. The next section, verses 12 through 17, uh, describes that God, in fact, is working powerfully. God, in fact, continues to work on behalf of his people. Listen to this. Yet God, my King, is from of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. Speaking now to God and listen to the way the number of times you is directed. He is aware that God now is active, the God who speaks and the God who creates and the God who sustains the world that that he has made. Listen to this. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the waters. You crushed the heads of of Leviathan. You gave him as food for the creatures of the, of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever flowing streams. Yours is the day. Yours also the night. You have established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all of the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and Winter. You see, in these verses here, the psalmist is drawing attention to God's mighty acts of redemption, where we see his limitless love. And then his mighty acts of creation, where we see his limitless power. The acts of redemption, of course, for the Old Testament, centered on what God did in delivering his people from Egypt. When the people were, were able to cross through the Red Sea, it was a dagger in the, the god Baal, who was beside the god of fertility, the god of the seas, the god of the rivers, the god of the waters. And God broke his back as he led his people out. He destroyed, this is a little strange, but he destroyed the monster Egypt with its multiple heads, thinking of the Nile running north and hitting the delta where it all divides up and there are multiple heads there. And and God destroyed, destroyed Egypt and then fed in the wilderness, his, the, uh, fed to the wilderness creatures, the carcasses of the Egyptian soldiers. God's destruction of, of Egypt in its 
uh, captivity and its capture and, and sustaining and, and, um, and enslaving of God's people. And then, and then also, besides the crossing of the sea and the destruction of Egypt, there is the supplying of food for his people in the wilderness. God did all this. And we think about what God has done in our own day. And can some even charge God with sitting on his hands still? That God is passive. That God is not active. That God is not involved with his world. Charging that God is sitting on his hands or they're resting on his lap. Think about those hands. Those hands that bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those hands which were pierced for our iniquities and those hands which even now, even this day, Jesus is lifting them up in prayer, in supplication to the Father as He prays for His suffering people. God is sitting on his hands. God is resting his hands in his lap. Hardly. He's working his mighty redemption still. And then there is the mighty, the mighty acts of the creation that are referred to uh, in in, uh, verses 16 and 17. We see his limitless power. It is referring to creation. God making the day and the night. God placing the lights in the sky. What what we call know as our our sun and our, our the stars and the moons. God is the powerful creator. I love to do this. But I, but I love to explore in my little way from my study um, the magnitude of, the, of the, the universe and in particular the size of the planets and the suns that God has made. I found one this week that is called a hypergiant. I didn't find it visually, but on the internet. Uh, a, a particular star called a hypergiant. Now that's bigger than a supergiant. And, and it's bigger than giant. It is, it is hyper giant. Now, if you were to take this sun and imagine it in the middle of our solar system, this sun, um, would occupy the entire area of the orbit of Jupiter. This one star, this one sun is a hundred million miles in diameter. Now, why is it helpful to think about that? Because things that big don't just show up. Things that big, as things little, are created by God who put it there. As the scripture says, through Christ God created all things, and now listen to this, and upholds all things by the word of his power. One of the great comforts that we have is considering um, the words of the a catechism, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism in this case, and number 27. What do you understand by the providence of God? God has, God has, of course, created the world, created the universe, and his providence is his upholding what he has made through time until today. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which he upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf 
and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty. All things, in fact, come to us not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. God does act. Because because he acts, we can pray and make this last section of the psalm our own prayer and our own focus as we consider how we handle this, okay? Verses uh, 18, rather, uh, through the end of the psalm. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs, and and a foolish people reviles your name. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Let me read that again. Do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beasts. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have regard for the covenant, for the dark places of the land are full of the inhabitants of violence. Let not the downtrodden turn back in shame. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O God, defend your cause. Remember how the foolish scoff at you all the day. Do not forget the clamor of your foes, the uproar of those who rise against you, which goes up continually. We pray to this God who acts, first of all, that God's name would be honored, that God's name would be honored. It really opens up with a foreshadowing of the Lord's Prayer. Remember this, O Lord, how the enemy scoffs and a foolish people reviles your name. And we pray, um, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And so while the enemies still scoff and the foes still revile, and fools revile God's name, we pray that God's name would be honored today in the midst of the suffering of COVID-19. Well, one way that we can do that is by looking again at this great great language in, in verse 19, do not deliver the soul of your dove to the wild beast. God is saying here, the psalmist is saying here that God will protect the soul of his dove. God will protect the soul of his dove. God describes his people as, as, as helpless, as a precious little dove, a, a vulnerable bird. And so we are like vulnerable, we are vulnerable children before him. We are that loved one. And, and in the face of COVID-19, we realize our vulnerability. And yet we also hear in this a reminder that we are dearly loved. We are facing not a beast that would destroy us, but there is out there a silent killer that is invisible and that is indiscriminate. We hear of prime ministers, we hear of royalty that have this virus, but we also are hearing of of children as well. But for the Christian Um, God protects the soul of his dove. Which means we are never out of his care. 
We're never beyond the reach and the care of God, no matter our circumstance. And in this time of great threat, even as we consider stepping into eternity. This is an invitation from the psalmist to us today to realize that we have nothing that we need to fear. God's precious dove. The second thing we have to remember here is the psalmist in verse 20 is saying to God, uh, have regard for the covenant. What that really is saying is, God, remember the covenant you made with us. God, of course, does not forget it, but it is a way for us to remember too. Remember God's covenant. I want to uh, quote something from, um, uh, from Herman Bobbink about the covenant. Uh, and the covenant is, is God's eternal decree put into motion. Uh, God's eternal commitment or, or plan or decree uh, of sovereign election is, is being fleshed out and lived out and, and in this covenant of grace where God himself commits to save his people and God himself comes uh, in, the, in the person of Jesus, in the incarnation, to be the, that mediator between a sinful people and, and our holy God. And God sends the Spirit then, the giver of life, who works regeneration, who causes God's people to be born again, to be able to live, to be able to, to trust in Christ. And, and in these words, now of, of uh, Jonathan Edwards, in that act of regeneration, you become yourself. You, you are who you were made to be. And this, this regenerating power of the Holy Spirit is a spiritual explosion that is um, invisible and unrepeatable in this gift of new life. You cannot see it. It is invisible, but you are birthed right into eternity. The covenant, then, is, is God putting into action His commitment to save his people. We are at a frightening time because of the rate at which this virus is, is multiplying before our eyes. And all indicators are that the worst that we'll experience is in front of us and not behind us. And as I've said, we can't know the full impact but this is the comfort that we have. We address our fears with the covenant of grace. We address our fears with the reality, with God's promise that I will be your God no matter what. I will be your God no matter of the financial impact on you. No matter of the physical pain upon any of my people. I will be your God, no matter what. And finally, that leads us to pray. The end of this psalm describes people who are in opposition to God and to his people. 
Um, they are clamoring against God and his foes, we see in verse 23. They are in an uproar who are against God. Well, what is our attitude to be? Our attitude is, is to pray. To pray that God, by his spirit, um, would, would uh, for God to rise up and to exalt himself in the eyes of the whole world. To pray that many would see the glory of Christ. Only the Spirit of God can do this. And the Spirit of God moves by prayer. We are conditioned in our nation in particular, but it is universal across the world. We are conditioned to rely upon ourselves. We are conditioned to manage our own lives. And that becomes an addictive thing as we seek to, to, to provide everything that we need for ourselves and manage it so that we can, so we can live the way that we want to live. And yet we're in a world now where this COVID-19 is like a poison gas that you cannot see. You do not know where it is. You don't know when it will strike. And into this world, we say, it is appropriate to be fearful. It is appropriate to have, have respect for this disease. And yet it is our prayer that the panic that many feel that turns into hopelessness and despair would be, by the Holy Spirit, would become a wise and appropriate fear as we are aware of our mortality and aware of what God has done to deliver us. These words from the book of Hebrews. Um, Jesus was appointed, um, or it was appointed rather, for all men to die once. And after that comes judgment. So we want to look for opportunities to share the reason for the hope that is in us. And it might be over the internet primarily today or over the telephone. But as we are engaging in conversation with people who are experiencing panic, look for opportunities to be able to, to um, give them a reason for the hope that is in you and share with them this hope. Hebrews 9 goes on to say, So Christ, having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin. He's accomplished that in his first coming. But to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So this is what we pray. We pray that the people around us would listen to the beckon of their own mortality and would consider that even in this, especially in this moment, it is the time to respond to the love of the Father. We believe, we say, that, we, that our Father, uh, in His providence, brings about all that this world, uh, all that occurs in this world. That does not make God responsible for evil, but he does in his providential sovereignty allow for that in order for us to come to grips with our mortality and our need for him. Let us pray that God would make us useful. And perhaps you're here listening to this message and you have never before really taken Jesus' words seriously. 
I urge you to consider that Christ came one time in his death on the cross to to deal with our sins and to remove them from God and to make a way for us to become little doves under God's uh, vulnerable people, under God's care in, in his hands. But he is coming a second time to deliver all those who are eagerly waiting for him. May each one of us be in that crowd. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful uh, for the vivid uh, truth of your word that can even surprise us in its bluntness at times. And yet you know our hearts, you know the human condition so well. You know that we become afraid and yet you provide uh, through your word and by your spirit ways to resolve that, that, uh, that terror and that panic that we can have in a time like this. So we pray that we would sink our roots deep into you. Deep into that river that's, that flows and that brings life and refreshment to the city of God. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.